0: Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Checkman. Ask any of the 20 and 30-somethings working in tech in San Francisco and Silicon Valley, and I assure you that they think they are inventing the world. But the fact is that most of them, including some that have become household names, are merely footprints in the shadow of David Sarnoff. David Sarnoff, born in 1891, had a visionary understanding of everything from the telegraph to the future of the internet. And just as Steve Jobs had Wozniak, Sarnoff had Edwin Armstrong. Not surprisingly, that relationship ended in an even worse way. That story, the idea that everything old is new again and that history does repeat itself, is at the heart of the network by my guest, Scott Woolley. Scott Woolley is a technology and business writer, formerly a Forbes telecom correspondent and the magazine's West Coast bureau chief. It is my pleasure to welcome Scott Woolley here to talk about the network, the battle for the airwaves, and the birth of the communications age. Scott, thanks so much for joining us.
1: Uh, Thank you for having me. I loved that summary. I wish I'd uh, been able to put it on the back cover of the the book. (laughs) It's a hard topic to summarize, and and you just did a great job, so thank you. Thank
0: you very much. I appreciate it. For our younger listeners, to that point, tell us who David Sarnoff was, first of all.
1: Well, as you mentioned, he was born uh, in 1891 in, uh, in Russia and moved, um, showed up in Manhattan as a nine-year-old in 1900 and uh, found himself his, uh, uh, a, a job in 1905 with the Marconi Wireless Telegraph Company. So the first real wireless um, communications company of any sort before there was AM radio, there was the Wireless Telegraph. And from there, he was hooked um, and obsessed with the fact that the idea that you could connect with distant people using invisible waves which in 1900 was uh, was really astounding and then he hooked up with Edwin Armstrong this amazing inventor and then things really took off.
0: And tell us about Edwin Armstrong.
1: He was born uh, a few months before David Sarnoff so they're almost exactly the same age grew up in New York and was sort of a star student at Columbia University in the electrical engineering department Um, and invented basically the first radio amplifier that really worked, uh, the vacuum tube amplifier, it's sometimes called. And all of a sudden, faint radio signals that were drifting in could be magnified a thousand times. And so Sarnoff and Armstrong had this one uh, night when Sarnoff, Allowed Armstrong to hook his invention up to the Marconi company's big antenna, and the two of them sat there amazed as they started hearing wireless telegraph messages drift in, first from England and then Hawaii and then Germany, and were really the first people to witness and realize that these invisible waves could connect the entire planet.
0: And when Sarnoff, as Sarnoff started to realize this, he saw it not necessarily just from an inventor's point of view. But he had really visionary ideas of how this could, you know, in, in the parlance of today, change the world.
1: Yes, and Sarnoff's great talent was both that he understood the technology very well. He wasn't the technical genius that Armstrong was, but he had a deep technical understanding that he married to a, 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 an understanding of how ordinary people would want to use this. So he pushed, for instance, when the whole world was obsessed with using wireless communications just to replace the telegraph or supplement the telegraph, he realized that much better uh, to use the technology to allow one person to communicate cheaply with millions of people, to broadcast. So he really pushed AM radio broadcasting in the 1920s, and as a result, um, multiplied the power of the
0: airwaves. And one of the things about Sarnoff, and and it, it also goes to the heart of what the conflicts were between Sarnoff and Armstrong, is that Sarnoff didn't get stuck in one technology. He didn't get stuck in one way. He was always very quick to move on to what he thought the next iteration was.
1: Yes, in fact, when he was giving sort of his valedictory speech at the end of uh, at the end of his uh, career, he said he's. Never been interested in the past and only somewhat interested in today, uh, but it's always been the future that fascinated him. And that was one of his real advantages. Um, that combined with this optimism that scientists and inventors like Armstrong would continue to invent new breakthroughs. So by the time the wireless telegraph was finally succeeding, he had moved on to AM radio. And by the time that was succeeding, he, would, he had moved on to television and so on, all the way up through the Internet in the 1960s, the very first um, forecast exactly how the internet was going to grow and what it was going to look like with remarkable precision.
0: Talk a little bit about that and that unique quality, and it really is one of the things that makes Sarnoff both a visionary as a technologist, as you say, but also as as a businessman, that, that he wasn't bogged down in any one thing, that he was always willing to kind of let go of what was successful to move on to the next thing.
1: Yes, and that is such an important uh, skill in technology Mm -hmm. given the pace that it moves. Um, and, And Armstrong, by contrast, was very focused on making sure he got credit for everything he'd invented in the past and as a result turned his focus to the past. And Sarnoff would write him these letters encouraging him to let the past take care of itself, credit will end up going where it's due, and instead turn his talents to inventing the future. Uh, advice that Armstrong ultimately was not able to take later in his career, but really really defined Sarnoff's ability to take a look at what was in the labs, what was going to cut the cost of connecting people. He was obsessed with lowering the cost of communications and lowering the the cost of what it would take for an ordinary person to connect with another person on the assumption that people have this boundless desire to communicate. And so if you can cut the cost, you'll be able to make more money because the amount of communication will explode. And that really defined the 20th century, and it continues to define technology today.
0: What did Sarnoff understand about this notion of broadcasting, of one person being able to talk to, to thousands at that point?
1: Well, he really well, all the technologists were working on um Just making the connections better um, and inventing new components of a wireless system, he invented a new business model, and that business model was designed to drive down the cost of every connection. And so, while Theodore Vail, who ran AT and T, was always sort of smugly dismissive of wireless um, technology because he saw it replacing, trying to replace the telephone, and knew it would never be any good at that. but what sarnoff realized is you can't if instead of trying to create a two-way um connection you just create a one-way connection and make it super super cheap for everybody that has a radio to listen to a radio program that's going to cause an explosion of connectivity um and And cause the industry to boom. So while a lot of people invented technology, he was great at inventing business models.
0: And did Armstrong, when their relationship was good, did Armstrong understand that idea? Did he understand the fundamental principle that Sarnoff was, was really that drove him?
1: I don't think he ever, uh, he had some understanding of it clearly, but it was never something that was interested him that much. And he had a very naive view of the way that business worked um, that ended up causing him a lot of problems. And his basic philosophy is, I'll build a better technology, everybody will appreciate it and adopt it. Um, and, and that's not the way technology works, um, often because the incumbent industries are not that excited about being uh, made obsolete, um, and just because he didn't really focus on how are we going to make the business model of this technology work um, so that was his great failing and something he never learned from his friend David Sarnoff.
0: You mentioned FM radio before. The the movement from AM to FM, that really is at the core of, of where the, the worst conflict came between Sarnoff and Armstrong.
1: That's right. In 1933, a few days before Christmas in 1933, Armstrong, who was working as a professor at Columbia, invited his friend Sarnoff up for a, a visit and showed him FM radio, which was um Armstrong's sort of fourth major invention of his life and he was very excited to show it to his friend he then um fm was slow to take off and armstrong began to suspect that the reason was that sarnoff was intentionally sabotaging it to protect his am radio network um sarnoff ran rca which controlled nbc which had the biggest two radio networks in the early days um and and that was where the rift really began, and it just got uglier and uglier as um, Armstrong became convinced that Sarnoff was the head of this conspiracy to crush f m and indeed f m was crushed uh by regulations um out of washington uh, and 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 the potential of that technology was limited for decades after he invented it.
0: And what did you discover in your research about the degree to which Sarnoff was responsible for really trying to bury it?
1: Well, that's the question that really fascinated me from the beginning, because I'd read all these stories about what, a, uh, basically from Armstrong's perspective, and he had you know, congressional investigations into what Sarnoff and RCA had done, and he filed this federal lawsuit. Um, against Sarnoff accusing him of all this stuff, but he never really managed to prove it. And so I was very curious as to whether that was just he never found the smoking gun, or whether there wasn't a smoking gun. So the the book really digs into the other potential uh, villains, if you will, the other the the rest of the local radio stations, for instance, who had a strong desire to kill FM. CBS, NBC's big rival, had a very strong desire to kill FM. So the the, the injustice that he faced, the Armstrong faced, is sort of undeniable. But his choice of a villain was really colored by his long personal relationship with Sarnoff. And in fact, the... Um, the the people behind the bad things that happened to Edwin Armstrong was a much larger group, I think Mm -hmm. it's safe to say.
0: Why was everybody out to kill FM?
1: Well, in the... In the aftermath of World War II, FM had really proved itself on the battlefield as being uh, a huge advantage. Patton used it to great effect with his tanks in the Pacific Theater. Walkie-talkies were a huge advantage for the Marines. And there was no question that FM was better on every front in terms of its cost, in terms of its effectiveness, sound quality than AM. So after the war was over... A bunch of people ran to Washington and made the case that the FCC really needed to slap a bunch of regulations to prevent the threat of FM monopolies. So all the local AM radio stations, which at the time were the people who were making all the money in AM, were very afraid of losing their profits. And so they convinced the government to sort of um, get ahead of the problem of FM monopolies that didn't exist and, in fact, have never existed. Um, But it was really the local radio stations that were making the bulk of the money and had the strongest incentive to go out and um, find these covert ways to cripple this technology and corrupt things in Washington.
0: One of the other things that Sarnoff was looking to in in terms of his attitude towards FM, it was like a step he couldn't be bothered with. He was already on to television.
1: Exactly. And it was a little, it was also a little confusing. FM was, in fact, a huge breakthrough in sort of the first broadband technology. Um, you know, this idea that by using... Um, Instead of trying to use a narrow band, that that would be the best, which had been the thinking. Armstrong, it was a revolution, but at the time it wasn't that much of an economic revolution. For Sarnoff, going from AM radio to FM radio was interesting, but not that thrilling. Going from AM radio to television was. So he put all his focus on developing the television industry, and Armstrong, instead of seeing that as sort of a legitimate difference of opinion, took it as just more evidence of... Sarnoff's desire to, um, to cripple FM.
0: And talk about the impact that it had on their relationship and how it deteriorated and, and really what it did to Armstrong.
1: Well, it, Sarnoff had pointed out in several of his letters that, that you know, Armstrong did better when he was keeping his eyes on the future and trying to invent new things. But as FM failed to take off, Armstrong stopped going into the lab and started going into his lawyer's offices. And so he he convinced uh, both the Senate and the House to launch investigations. But those sort of sputtered out when he could never prove that um, Sarnoff was behind it all. Then he filed this big antitrust lawsuit and spent all his time in depositions and trying to prove um, you know, that his old friend really had betrayed him. And after years and years of that, it really... Ate at him, and the book actually opens in his penthouse apartment. Here's this amazing inventor, Ivy League professor, multimillionaire, considering jumping out of his apartment and killing himself because he had been so embittered over the injustices he saw and his inability to prove that David Sarnoff was behind it all.
0: And Sarnoff simply moved on; he really passed Armstrong by.
1: He did, um, you know. For his tradition of always looking <laughs> at the future, he was not going to let this tragedy um, you know, stop him from looking at the next thing. So by the time Armstrong was literally on the ledge, Sarnoff was spending all his time thinking about the next revolution beyond television, satellites. And he was pushing for basically early versions of satellite radio and satellite television in the 1950s. Um While Armstrong was still fighting fights in the nineteen thirties um, so he it 's unclear exactly how Sarnoff felt about it because there 's no record of sort of his honest uh, uh, he he went to armstrong 's funeral he clearly you know had an emotional connection with the man, but he never let it slow him down professionally
0: mm-hmm. and did he have any immediate reaction to uh, armstrong's suicide um
1: Nothing that, you know, no one sort of interviewed him and got him to sort of spill his guts on the topic. But by going, he went to this funeral and the preacher is basically accusing him from the pulpit of having caused his friend's death and RCA from being behind it, not by name, but very thinly veiled accusations, not so thin, <laughs> um, barely veiled at all. So for him to know that this was coming and still go to the funeral, uh, I mean, he wanted to make the point that Armstrong may have blamed him for all his problems, but he, w- he did not consider himself guilty
0: did sarnoff have any reaction later on i mean going into late 50s early 60s when, when fm started to actually develop a life
1: uh but by that point he was on the color television right. and satellites and microchips and the future his interest in and the am and the one of the major problems that armstrong seemed to overlook was that radio by the late 1940s was not a good business to be in if you 're a radio network. it was still a good business to be in if you 're a radio station but sarnoff wasn 't making money, so he was trying to sue Sarnoff for a business that didn 't really make any money and was accusing it of being a monopoly and so Sarnoff just didn 't care about them. I mean he wanted to win the, the, the lawsuit, but it wasn 't the, the for him, radio was the technology of the past, and he wanted to spend all his time on microchips and fiber optics.
0: Another classic case where history indeed repeats itself.
1: Yes, it, that was his <laughs> last really in, in amazing prediction was that um, uh, a combination of, he called, instead of calling them fiber optic cables, he called them laser pipes, which I love. is a much more descriptive phrase for glass fibers when you shoot right. light down to communicate. And so he was spending all his time on the idea that this this sort of computer network would ultimately be the way to expand communication power and do all the things that Armstrong really wanted to do, but got stuck on his invention and his credit. Sarnoff was willing to say, okay, they, they may have won that fight, but let's look to the next, tech, next technology and figure out new ways to connect people. Um, and, and and so he was not afraid of obsolescence. I think that's very fair to
0: say. As you dug into this and as this story moved along for you, were you surprised by so many of the parallels to the world of technology today?
1: Shocked because, you know, I've grown up, uh, like I think most people on especially in the last 10 years when you think about what smart when we didn't have iPhones a decade ago and you think about what your smartphones can do for you and locating you and connecting you and every sort of new wireless app that comes up Um, every week it seems like. I thought we were just living in this unprecedented age of wireless advancement. In fact, it's been going on for a century, and if you look at people's reactions to the wireless telegraph or the way AM radio changed daily life in the 1920s, you know, I started to believe that those changes were even more profound than what we 're going through today, and you can learn a lot about people 's sort of complacency after the after big technological advancements. The general human reaction is to say, "Wow that 's amazing! nothing like that 's ever going to happen again." but in fact, over and over again, we 've been shocked by the power of these invisible waves to connect us in new ways and new engine, new inventors to find um, Radically cheaper ways to to link people together.
0: The other part of it also being that there's always resistance. There are always those people that think, "Oh, it's just a fad. This is not really important."
1: Absolutely, and because the airwaves are invisible, they're intangible, they're pretty hard to understand for um, you know ordinary people, and I kind of <laughs> include myself in that. They're they're easy to to manipulate, um, and and that's what happened with AM and FM radio, and the people who control access to the airwaves and the older technologies have a strong incentive to not let the new technologies get any access, um, lest the old technologies be made and exposed as badly obsolete. But it's pretty easy if you can just block the new technologies from getting this really the it's the oxygen of any wireless. Um, industry are the airwaves. And if you don't have any airwaves, it doesn't matter how good your technology is. And that pattern certainly repeats itself today as we see older industries hanging on to airwaves and newer, much more innovative industries struggling to have any at all.
0: Right. I mean, you, you, you could listen to some of the things that Edwin Armstrong said and, and relate them to words that would come out of the mouth of cable companies to executives today. <laughs>
1: absolutely um there <laughs> the, the 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 desire of a communications company to keep scarce to make communications scarce and therefore more expensive is very strong and the incentive of inventors from Armstrong to inventors today is always to open up communications, make it more abundant, and thus cheaper so those uh, you you're absolutely right those two incentives. Um, are diametrically opposed. They were in the 1920s, 30s, and 40s, and they still are today.
0: And it would be interesting to imagine, just for fun, what Sarnoff would think of, of the technological revolution today.
1: Absolutely. And the closest that I have to, parallel I have to him, is probably Elon Musk, who about a year ago came out with this plan to do away with fiber optic cables and instead um, transmit information around the world through space lasers, literally create a fleet of satellites and then link them with lasers and, and beam information from one continent to another by zipping uh, lasers between satellites in space, which may sound crazy, but David Sarnoff would have loved it and probably would have started to put as uh, many researchers
0: as possible into making it happen. Scott Woolley, his book is The Network, The Battle for the Airwaves and the Birth of the Communications Age. Scott, I thank you so much for spending your time with us.
1: Uh, Thank you. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you.